Amen. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you, everybody. Thank you particularly that um, you very kindly allowed me to be online rather than in person, which you've kind of given me the gift of another five hours of my life today. And I am profoundly grateful. I'm, I'm so sorry I can't be with you in person, but I'm in such a busy season. I, I work as the director of the Free Church Track at Cranham Hall in Durham. Cranham Hall have been training church leaders for over a hundred years and I'm responsible for people being trained there who come from the Free Churches, Pentecostal, Baptist, um, new churches like yourself, Methodist, in, uh, Independent, Evangelical. Fantastic group of students, got 20 students this year and I also kind of lecture in leadership and mission and we have a, a really really marvellous time so you know if, if God ever calls you to ministry and leadership uh, please do and come talk to me but it's just been such a busy season and I was uh, emailing Ellie about it this week and she very very kindly said well why don't you just come via zoom so here I am thank you uh, three things I want to say about the author of John before we look at one of the stories in his gospel. First is this, this is eyewitness. This is eyewitness. This was seen by the person who wrote the book. You know, every story in the gospel, we know where it happens and we know when. Now, they didn't have watches. They used, you know, the sun substantially for time, but all the stories in the gospel have been placed on a calendar using the Jewish festivals as key marker points and then linked together. Each story is linked very carefully together to the next one so we know where we are on the calendar for absolutely everyone. And I do say more about that um, in my book. Now, the other thing you'll notice as you read it is there are very detailed descriptions of places and events. And they're almost unconsciously written. You know, they're never the main point, but they're just there. And they're the sort of details you get when somebody has seen something as happening and that they are themselves observant. You know, some people just don't seem to notice what's happening around them. Uh, but the author's not one of those people. He's got his eyes open and he notices little things. Like in chapter 3, Nicodemus comes at night. Or in chapter 5, the man where the... The, the man is healed by a pool, and that pool has got five colonnades. Chapter 6, the grass is green at the feeding of the 5,000. And um, the man who had his ear cut off at the arrest of Jesus, he knows he was a relative of the high priest. All these kind of little details sprinkle through the gospel as we go, and you know you might notice some of those this morning. And the eyewitness standard in John is very, very high in my view. He's, he was either there himself and witnessed the whole thing or I reckon he's talked at length himself with the people who were there and it would not surprise me if he had taken notes as he went along he's that kind of a person second thing to say about the the guy who wrote this gospel is he knows Jesus very very well you know the author of John is probably the closest friend that Jesus had there's this literary device in the gospel of an unnamed disciple. He appears right at the beginning in the first thing that Jesus does in chapter 1, verses 35 to 42, where he invites this unnamed person and Andrew, who we get to hear about, he invites those two guys back to his house for a late lunch and a long chat. 
and that's a literary device that enables the author to put himself in the story without drawing attention to himself because he doesn't want you to notice that he's there he wants you to notice Jesus and in chapter 13 this unnamed disciple acquires something of an identity he is the disciple whom Jesus loved what a thing to have said about yourself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And time does not permit us to explore what lies behind that particular description, but it does suggest very strongly that he and Jesus were close. And this disciple whom Jesus loved is at the cross. He witnesses the death of Jesus. He's the only male disciple present. And as Jesus hung dying, the most terrible and painful and humiliating of deaths, Jesus gives his mum into the care of his best friend. You can read about that in chapter 19, 26 and 27. So, sitting behind the gospel, writing the gospel, are probably the two people in the world who know Jesus the best his best friend, whom he loved, and his mum. Third thing to say about the gospel and how it's been written is this gospel has been written for you to meet Jesus. Think, well, how can I meet Jesus now? How can I be a friend of Jesus now? You know, when we make friends with each other, there are all kinds of things we can do. We can go for walks, we can have a beer, we can have a coffee, we can have a meal, we can play a game, we can chat. How can I do that with Jesus? But you know, actually, when you think about it, when we connect with someone and become friends, the way we do that is we tell each other our stories. I tell you about who I am. You start to build up a picture of me. You start to know me. You also watch me in action. You see the kind of things I do. You know, the way I behave. The way I respond to people. And when you see what I do, you don't just see what I do. You begin to see the me that's behind the things I do. The me that's behind the things I say. Because I kind of speak and act like you do in a, a moderately consistent manner. When you watch me in action and listen to what I say, you begin to work out who I am and you begin to know me. And the Gospel of John has been written very beautifully, very elegantly, for that to happen with you and Jesus. The Gospel of John is like a beautiful house. When you go inside... You don't just hear the story of Jesus, you will meet with him and find that you have become his friend. So let's go inside, shall we? We're going to look at one story, the story of the woman at the well. It's chapter 4 and we're going to read from verses 1 to 42. And I suggest that you have, you know, if you've actually got a, you know, Remember these, an actual Bible. Um, if you've got that, have it in front of you, chapter 4 of John. Or if you've got your phone and you've got your Bible on your phone, open your Bible app and go to chapter 4. Start at verse 1. And, and I'm not going to put up in any slides, okay? I, I, but please follow the scripture as we go. So let's just pray.
Father, we thank you that you have drawn us close to you and opened your heart to us. And we pray now that as we dive into this gospel, that we would meet with Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, eight things I'm going to say from this story in the next half an hour. Um, number one, this story is a God-given moment. It's a God-given moment. Verse one, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. And that's another John, that's John who baptized. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. You know, so many different things come together to enable the woman to meet with Jesus. Lots of people are starting to follow Jesus and learn from him. And Jesus' existing disciples baptise those people. And in Jewish culture, baptism marks the point where you move from one reality to another reality. It's what the, um, the sociologists call a liminal space. You, you kind of go through this event that symbolises and speaks and says very, very clearly, I am now in a new place. I've moved from here to there. And the Pharisees hear about this. And we know from other stories in John that they get pretty angry about this. And we have this little detail just there. Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard. Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard. Now I wonder who told him. But anyway, Jesus learns that the Pharisees has heard and that they're getting annoyed about this. And so Jesus moves out of town to a safer place. You see, Galilee is up in the north. Galilee is beyond the particular political reach of this group of Pharisees. And to get there quickly, he has to go through Samaria. Now, think of the civil war in Syria. You know, all the different bits of territory held by different rival competing groups who are not getting on. Very like that. But the conflict, the actual sort of conflict between Jews and Samaritans was never as violent, well not then anyway, as the Syrian civil war has been, because the Romans ruled over the whole place and they ruled over both territories and the Roman army kept the peace. But those two groups of people, the Samaritans and the Jews, they did hate each other, they despised each other. And there was actually a longer way round from Judea to Galilee that avoided going through Samaria. But Jesus is insistent, no, we're, take, we're taking the shortcut, guys. So all these things are just happening and it gets to the middle of the day. Jesus is tired. The disciples are hungry. Being men, they can't decide what to do about lunch. They all go into town together. All of which leaves Jesus sitting by himself 
all alone, by a well, or possibly even on the well. When a Samaritan woman comes to get water. You know, it's not time to collect water. It's far, far too hot. Tiny little detail in the Gospel. It was about noon. You don't collect water at noon. And you don't collect water on your own. You come as a group before the sun gets up. Partly this is because that's the time everybody does it. Partly because it's a social event, a time for some gossip. Partly because you can help each other. All the women can help each other. It's heavy work shifting water. But this woman comes all on her own to the well at noon. And all these things come together to create this moment. It's a God moment. It's a setup. And maybe today, it's a God moment for you. Number two, Jesus steps forward. We're now in verse seven. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Hmm. You see, the social conventions of this time demanded that when a woman approaches the well, Jesus withdraws at least 20 metres and turns his back on the woman. That's how they were to behave. That's what everybody did. And there's a bit about that that gets us angry. You know, it's like... It's a bit like the situation developing again in Afghanistan. You know, we don't educate the women, we don't treat the women with equality. They're just there to carry water and have children. But there is actually something good about this social convention that protects women. The whole point of it was to keep difficult men at a distance from vulnerable women in public places. And this is a massive problem in our society right now. 61,000 rapes reported last year. And only 1.5% will result in a conviction. And that's partly because it often comes down to man's word against woman's word. And so there is actually something helpful and protective going on here. A social convention that keeps women in a safe place when in public. So let's not be too down on the social conventions we find in the story. But the thing I want you to notice, and I think you probably have noticed, is what Jesus does. The woman certainly notices. Jesus steps right over the social conventions. Now, he remains within the purpose of the conventions. He treats the woman very tenderly with respect, kindness, equality and grace. He doesn't step over the convention to take advantage. He steps over the convention to help her. The social convention is there to keep the woman safe by keeping them apart. And Jesus keeps the woman very, very safe. But there is no way in this God moment 
that is going to stay apart. He sees God working and he seizes the moment. He steps forward and comes startlingly close. But he does it in a way that is so empowering. He asks her to help him. And maybe right now, Jesus is doing that to you. Maybe right now, Jesus is coming into your space to have a chat with you. Number three, Jesus offers life. We're now in verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Anyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. You know, the woman is still trying to process the fact that a Jewish man has spoken to her. And, and Jesus kind of lets that hang in the air and he just carries on talking. And one surprise is quickly followed by another. He says, look, I'm asking you for a drink. Why don't you ask me for one? If you ask me for a drink, I'll give you living water. Now, she is a bold woman. We're kind of starting to get to know her now. She's kind of got over the initial shock. She could have just withdrawn, but she's a bold woman. She engages. She has a go at him. Number one, we have already established you don't have a bucket with you. Hopeless. Drawing water, no bucket. You know, where's it going to come from? Number two, who do you think you are? This well here goes all the way back to Jacob, very famous patriarchal figure in our history. He was the well provider. You know, are you, who are you? Are you at his level? I don't think so. Now, Jesus doesn't get into any argument about his own limitations or who he might be. He just doesn't need to go there. He comes straight back, still on the original tack. And he says, look, I've got living water to give you. And there's a couple of things I want you to know about it. And number one, it will come right up within you. you know, the, the well isn't going to be outside, it's going to be inside you. And number two, it'll go on forever. And I love his, her response. She can sort of feel the sarcasm crackling in the air. She calls his bluff. Okay, give me the water then. And then we get to number four. Jesus shows that he knows. Jesus shows that he knows. Verse 16. He told her, go and call your husband and come back. 
I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What, what you have just said is quite true. And that is like, what? You know, what, what just happened there? Jesus shows that he knows. Is he very intuitive? Does he have a gift from God? Maybe both. But this is a very, very powerful moment in any friendship that's being developed. That I show that I know you. And maybe Jesus has sat down next to you and is telling you, I know you. Number five, Jesus opens up his heart to her. You know, this is all really difficult and painful, isn't it? Talking to a strange man about her difficulties with men. And she naturally tries to deflect him. You know, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about, I don't know, how and where we should worship. Let's go there. And uh, this is verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. They are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now I am a pastor for 30 years. I led the same church in Newcastle and it would not surprise you that one of our core activities is worship. You know, we have a worship pastor. We have an incredibly gifted worship team who inspire us very greatly, just as you do. What never ceases to delight me is that the most important teaching that Jesus ever gave on what worship is and how it's to be done is given here at this well just before a late lunch to a woman whose name we don't know, who appears to have an exceptionally painful past and is still undecided about who Jesus is. And this is just like the conversation Jesus has with a man called Nathaniel in chapter 1. Engaging in open-hearted, self-revealing, high-trust conversations is apparently what Jesus loves to do. Worship is not going to be about place. It's not even going to be about format. Worship is going to be about the deepest part of your inner life connecting directly with 
God. Worship is going to be in the spirit. God is seeking people who are seeking God from the deepest part of themselves. And worship is not about ritual. It will come from a place of truth. You'll not be going through some motions. You'll be pouring out your heart in truth. Now something always something good always happens when when another person openly shares their heart with us and discloses what's important to them and tells us more about themselves. And Jesus is opening his heart to this woman in a very dramatic way. And she expresses confidence that you know the Messiah is going to come, he'll explain everything, which opens the door for Jesus to say, that's me. Number six, this transforms the woman. This transforms the woman within. And we're now at verse 28. You know, all of these things combined totally transform her. The spontaneity at the moment, you know, this is not a planned meeting. She's had no time to overthink it all. It's just come straight out of nowhere. The way that Jesus has treated her with respect, equality, empowerment, the knowing that she is known thing, but not judged or condemned in any way. And then Jesus opening up her heart, his heart to her, trusting her with his deepest and most important thoughts and then revealing who he is. It's totally transformative. Verse 28, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They come out of the town and made their way towards him. You know, when you show another person that you know them, all kinds of things can happen next. It can be very shameful. It can be very destructive. It can be very brutal. This is none of those things. This is a moment in the woman's life of healing, freedom and transformation. And what is thrilling about this is the way that the woman is able to face her past without any shame. And this is a shame culture. You know, her story has been so dysfunctional and difficult and she is in shame in her community. She has had repeated painful failings in committed relationships with all the resulting feelings of rejection and shame. Now, most of us try and hide the worst parts of our lives. Not only are we ashamed about it, but talking about it just brings back the pain. We relive it all again. And this is different. Totally different. Jesus has taken the woman to a completely new place. She can face her past with freedom and without regret. In the way that Jesus has led her through this, her story has been reframed and she has been healed. She says to her neighbours, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Now this is 
not a woman hiding in shame. The pain of the past has gone. Now, what was, what was wrong in her life is still part of her story. She acknowledges its presence. But her freedom from the shame of it has become the reason to invite others to meet Jesus. She moves in, you know, maybe a couple of hours from being an outcast all alone to being at the very centre of the village and at the heart of all that's happening. Extraordinary moment in her life. Number seven. The male followers of Jesus don't get it. And this is verse 27 and verses 31 to 33. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked him, what do you want? Or, why are you talking with her? Meanwhile, verse 31, meanwhile his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, could somebody have brought him some food? I mean, it's so comical and familiar. You know, they missed it. They completely missed it. They missed the moment. They missed the conversation, which is fortunate because they would have probably sent the woman away before it even got going. They missed this thing that Jesus does of showing that he knows another person. They missed the very interesting seminar on the true meaning and practice of worship or because they felt hungry and couldn't trust each other to get what they wanted. And now they've come back, they still don't get it. They don't understand that these kind of high trust, self-revealing, empowering conversations are meat and drink to Jesus. They are what feeds him and energizes him. They're things he loves to do. You know, all they can think of is that somebody must have brought him a pizza. Number eight. The female friend of Jesus goes and gets everyone. This is verses 39 to 42. The whole village become friends of Jesus. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. What a great time to be alive in Sychar. The outcast person is now right at the heart. She's not the centre of attention because Jesus is rightly the centre of attention. The villagers' faith is not dependent on her faith because they found Jesus for themselves. But she's right at the heart of what God is doing in that village. She gets it. And although we never get to know her name, you know, we feel like we know her. We feel connected to her. We identify with her. She's beginning to be our friend as well as Jesus' friend. Now, is this gender comparison deliberate? Yes, because the author does it again. 
He wants to see, he wants us to see that there are key moments when the women get it and the men miss it. Just before his death in chapter 12, there's a woman who really understands and there are men who are just grumbling. At the cross, there are four male soldiers completely ignorant of what they're doing and there are four women who know exactly what's going on. And at the resurrection, there are two men who witness the empty tomb but don't understand and go back home, presumably for breakfast, and it's a woman who stays behind and meets with Jesus. The woman gets it. And she goes and gets everyone. So, there's the story. Written for you to meet with Jesus. Written for you to receive living water within yourself and be totally transformed and as Dan kindly suggested if you would like to read more of John's stories of Jesus and you'd like me to help you meet with Jesus then um, do get my book um, called to be friends I've written it in a way that even if you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus and even if you haven't sort of read much of the Bible if at all you'll still be able to understand it and I've also written it if you've read John's gospel like a million times you're still going to get something from it so the band are going to come back now and we're going to respond to to Jesus I'm just going to create a moment where each one of us can can meet with him and respond to him uh, so do come up guys maybe you're feeling lonely and on your own maybe you are on your own you don't really know where to turn to well turn to Jesus he's here to meet you Maybe you're feeling dry or, you know, or empty. Maybe you feel like you've given everything you can. Maybe you know that the life of God is not bubbling up within you. Maybe it's just sort of dribbling out. Well, here's a moment. Just sit with Jesus. Ask him for a drink. Ask him for living water to rise afresh within you. Or maybe you're feeling broken. You look back and you just see wreckage and disappointment and pain and you think there's just been too many disasters. How could any of this change? Well, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He knows you. He loves you. He has living waters of forgiveness, freedom, healing, grace for you. Or maybe you're just more interested in food and lunch than you. You know that food is what you're really thinking about, not what Jesus is doing. You think, oh man, oh, I need to get more time with this guy and understand him more. Well, repent. Repent. And say afresh to Jesus, do you know what, Lord? I need to get to know you more and be a close friend whom you love.
So let's pray. Jesus, please come and sit next to each one of us. Touch our hearts and our minds. Bring healing and freedom and grace. And fill us afresh with living water. In Jesus' name.